Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Hi, welcome to the Great Women in Compliance podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network. You're hosted by Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine. I'm Lisa Fine, and welcome to our first interview for the spring semester. I'm really excited about this. So Maria Devanzo is the Chief Evangelist Author for Trallian. She was recommended to me by Sarah Haddon, who is also another great woman in compliance and also leads Corporate Compliance Insights which is another great source to get ethics and compliance news and is also, to be fair, one of our other sponsors. Again, now, about Maria, prior to joining Trallian, she was the Chief Compliance Officer for Cushman and Wakefield for a little over 10 years. And in that role, she was also the Chief Privacy Officer. Maria, I am, thank you for joining me and I hope I got all of that. So before we get to what a Chief Evangelist Officer means, can you talk a little bit about your background and how you got to this? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, thanks so much for having me. And yeah, you got it all right. So we're good to go. So I started my career out as a as a lawyer, as a litigator, and fell into compliance as a lot of people that I know in compliance also did. After I did some litigation, I had a real estate transactional law practice, my own practice for 10 years, which was really interesting. And then when the real estate world fell apart, I made my way into compliance. A friend of mine knew a guy who was the GC at Starwood Capital, which is a private equity firm in Greenwich, Connecticut. And I was their first ever chief compliance officer, spent a couple of years there, then went to AIG, also a regulated type compliance role. And then I found my way into Cushman and now I'm at Giant. So that's me in a nutshell. All right. So with that, I, that chief evangelist officer, I've never seen that title before. So what exactly does that mean? It sounds like it's just a fabulous thing to be able to do. So tell us about it a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Admittedly, I had not heard of that title either. And when I first started talking to Chaliant, there were a couple of iterations of what the title would be. And they landed on that because we're owned by a private equity firm that invests in mid-market tech companies. And a chief evangelist is a very tech-oriented type title, right? The it, I think originated, if I get this right, at Apple, where Guy Kawasaki was like the second chief evangelist for Apple, and it's now very common in the tech industry. And the way I've had it explained to me is it's somebody who proclaims the good news, right? Who explains to the world how their company's product or service can improve people's lives, right? And evangelists truly have the best interest of others at heart. And when I heard that and I was talking to our CEO, John Arendis, I said, well, that's a really great role for me because I'm really passionate about compliance, as you'll find out. And because I've done it for so long, I really felt like I could help other people. And that's, uh, that's really what I do. And, and it is a newly created role. And it's interesting. That's part of Apple also and other tech companies, because I don't think about it as much. Technology is so critical to everything we do right now. And I read the press release and I thought it was really interesting because one of the things that came in there is that you'll be listening to customers and community, communicating those conversations around the organization to ensure that Trelliant, which I think I may have said wrong before, but we fixed it. Um, I got your name right. So it's improving the customer experience at every touch point from product vision to consumer service. And so what does that mean to you? Can you talk a little bit about what you're communicating both ways? Absolutely. So just to step back just for a second. So my role actually has three legs to it, right? 
One is this thought leadership concept where I go out and participate in that, whether it's by writing or interviews or what have you, speaking on panels, et cetera. The other is to have input to the product, right? Because of my area of expertise in compliance, I have input into the, to the training. And when I got there, I watched a lot of the ethics and compliance training and there was stuff I loved and there was stuff I said, ah, you need a little bit more of this, a little bit less of that, what have you. And then the third part of it is doing exactly that, meeting with customers, getting on calls with current customers, with prospects, and talking to them about, you know, what they need, what issues are they struggling with, what do they, what could they use more of from us. A great example of that, we at the beginning, sorry, at the end of 2022, put together something that we like to call the Compliance Advisory Board. Mm -hmm. And we have about six or seven members on that board made up of all of our customers. It's half from the HR space, half from the ethics and compliance, corporate compliance space. And we meet on a quarterly basis and we tell them some of the stuff we're doing. And we also ask them what they would like to see more from us. So one of the first calls we had, they said, you know what we really struggle with? We struggle with keeping up to date on changes in the law certainly in the HR space, right? Certainly within the United States. And so we said, okay, we can help you with that. So we now publish an e-newsletter on a quarterly basis. And we, as we learn of them, we provide our customers with updates on various types of HR and compliance related law changes. Okay. And I actually think that's a really important and interesting topic too. As someone who's done both HR compliance and ABC ethics and compliance, yeah. I think the interaction to that is really critical for any company. So I guess one of the questions I have for you is how are those two groups playing together with one another to figure those things out? Do you find that there's cohesion, some challenges? Yeah, I find honestly that there's some challenges, right? In my experience, when I was in the seat, so to speak. I worked closely with our HR group. We had to because of the number of investigations really that we were doing. And you, I'm sure, know from your experience that HR and compliance, at least in that context, must collaborate. Being on this side of it, I'm seeing that there isn't as much collaboration, at least in more of the mid or smaller size organizations. And that's one of the things that we're trying to do. We actually went out with a blog last week on the importance of HR and the compliance folks collaborating on disciplinary issues, on investigations, on policies, on workplace culture, speak up, management of the hotline, all of that great stuff. I think it's really a lost opportunity if HR and compliance do not collaborate in that way. It's a lost opportunity also, as many of us, including you, have probably been looking at the Department of Justice, all the guidance that comes out. There's more and more conversation about tying compensation, or incentives or other things towards compliant behavior and consistent discipline. Right. If we don't do that together, we're all a little bit sunk, for lack of a more time. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And yeah, I have been doing a lot of talking about that, as you probably have too, right, about the new DOJ, all the flurry of activity that has come out of that office. But yeah, one of the more significant pieces as is the compensation clawbacks and tying it to incentives with respect to compliant behavior and then consequence management and all of that really great stuff. You know, it's funny, when I was in the seat, I was always talking about that. I was saying, look, the only way we're going to move the needle making compliance part of the DNA of the organization is if we tie it to financial incentives, because that's what people understand at the end of the day. And management was like, yeah, man, that's interesting. HR was on my side, but you got to convince 
it's in your leadership. And now what I say to folks is you have the benefit of being able to hold that document, right? There's multiple documents as you write the Monaco memo, the ECP changes and others. Wave them around and say, guys, now it's not just me. Now the DOJ is telling you that this is really important to them. So absolutely for both functions, HR and compliance. Yeah. And another thing that I think about with that a lot is how this is a way that you can actually encourage people to make ethical decisions, because if they're trying to do that and you're not just saying these are all the laws, this is a rule, but we want you to do the right thing. And we know that's what you want to do. That the DOJ, I think, in a lot of ways is ultimately looking for that in its own ways just as much. I don't know what your thought is on that. And then I have a follow-up about that. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with you. Look, I always used to tell my team, I had about 21 people or so that reported to me for both privacy and ethics and compliance. And what I would say to them is, guys, what we need to do is be able to tell a good story, Right. The God forbid we're meeting with the DOJ because there's some investigation into allegations of misconduct at that level. They're not expecting us to ensure against all kinds of rogue misconduct, right? They want, though, to know that we get it and that we are communicating that in an appropriate way to our organization and that we're doing the best that we can in order to make sure that the behavior of our folks is in line with ethics and integrity and that we're not a shop that's going to generate a profit at, no matter what. And that if it's a senior person, they're going to be treated the same way as somebody who is junior. They're not just going to have those people be the scapegoats and then have the profit. That's what I've been thinking a lot about lately is you can't get away with that. Companies think we've solved the problem at a junior level. If you're subtly encouraging them to do things wrong without saying it, you're responsible. You're not going to get an increase or a bonus. You sh shouldn't. I No, I completely agree with you. It's got to be, and that DOJ has come out and said that in their recent publications. It's got to be at all blind to level seniority, how much money you make for the organization, right? You have to impose your disciplinary plan, so to speak, in, the, in, when, in when you're in the face of misconduct in this equal sort of way. And I got to tell you that we could talk all day about this, Lisa, right? Because that also is important, as I'm sure, to encouraging an environment in which people feel like they they can come over, come forward, right, in the event they witness something, and the company's going to do something about it, even if it happens to impl implicate somebody at the most senior level. And so now you have a culture where people are actually willing to bring situations to you because... I used to tell my board all the time, I want to see an uptick in hotline reports. Mm -hmm. I want to see that go up. And they were like, oh, horrors. No, no, guys, if we see an uptick, that means that's one indicia of the program working, of the program being effective. Because I can guarantee you, just because people aren't coming forward does not mean it's not happening. Absolutely. I, I always, I talk to people who are talking about fans or something. What sort of speak up campaign? What are we going to do? And then I always say two things. I say, here's the least expensive and in my mind, one of the most effective ways. And you, and this is going to dovetail into some other questions about training in a second, is one, you make sure that people within the are also telling people at the end of meetings, in conversations, you can put up posters. I can say things forever, but I'm right. still ethics and compliance. Right. But if your business is saying... I hope you have somewhere to reach out to that you feel comfortable. But if you don't, I want you to call. I want you to put in a report. And you document that. Training is great in so many ways, but that is a way of the people showing or saying, 
And when I read about X in the in this, or I learned about it, that says a lot more when you have a VP or an SVP or who someone perceives as their tone at the top, which might not be who we traditionally consider, but you have your management level people saying this. And from a practical standpoint, you but you get out there. Absolutely. I agree with you. And my view of training was always a lot broader than what Chalain offers today, right? With the e-learning and all of that. Absolutely. That's an important component of it. You have to do it. The DOJ is expecting that you're going to do it. It's part of the guidance and all of that good stuff. But I always said, look, it's also about communications. It's about the regular, I would send out monthly emails about some hot topic, like a did you know concept. Early on at Cushman, before we changed management teams, we would also send out like a police blotter kind of thing. Anonymized, absolutely. Right. But all the crazy stories that, that people unfortunately get themselves involved in, right? It was great because pe- people like to read that kind of stuff. It's interesting. And then if they ever find themselves in a situation like that on their own, they're going to they're gonna think twice because they're like, oh, wait a minute. No, that, first of all, the company's going to penalize that. Secondly, it sounded stupid when I heard that somebody else did it. And <laughs> I would also have, to your point, absolutely to your point, Senior members, even middle mid-level managers coming out with communications. They would have they would bring it into their meetings. They would also send out emails. If we launched a new initiative, I would always ask if the regional president, if it was a regional thing, or the global CEO would send it out because it's got such an impact. And as compliance officers, unfortunately, we can send out as many emails as we want, but sometimes it just becomes white noise, right? Mm-hmm. But if the CEO sends it out, well, that's a little different, right? That's a little different. Right. Or even if it's somebody's, you know, with who they perceive as it, yes. absolutely. It's only 100%. the CEO or any other business person okay. in the organization who has a, is trying to make sales or execute on those deliverables. Yeah. You know, people expect that the lawyers are going to try to figure yeah. out, make sure you're following the law or they think you're going to get in trouble. So with compliance that, is everybody's job, right? Compliance is everybody's job. Exactly. So now that you've been doing this for a while in this different context, what are you hearing? We've talked a little bit about it, but about stress points from either customers or also stress points for you all in trying to deliver what is needed versus people think they need, for lack of a better term. Yeah, so that's interesting. I have to tell you that the answer to that question will really depend on the type of of customer. We deal with customers that are 500 employees less and customers that are 10,000 and above. But just generally speaking, there are issues with translations. Companies that are global struggle with translations. How do we get training out to all of the folks that we have working around the world in an economical way, right? Because translations, can be, that can be yeah. super expensive, right? So before I got to Trelliant, the sales folks there would struggle with that question. They were like, Maria, we don't really know how to answer that because they'll come to us, they'll say we need 25 languages, right? And it's going to take six figures just to translate the training. And so I would say, all right, this was my approach. And I share this with customers all the time when I'm on the phone with them. This was my approach. We were in 60 countries around the world, right? And of course, we had to translate our training as well. And my team, when we first started to do it, they came to me with the 25 list. And I said to them, I need you to push back. You got to push back. First of all, if we've got four people in a particular country and it's a low risk country and we're not doing some risky financial transactions there, I don't know that I want to pay to translate the training in that country. So we called it down to 12, 13 core languages. We translated our code into that, those, that set of languages. 
And then in any jurisdiction where I had folks that spoke a language that was outside of that, what I would do is I'd reach out to your point to my HR colleagues and I would say, you've got to have somebody on the ground in your function that's bilingual. And nine times out of 10, the answer is, of course we do, right? Of course we do. So I would train the trainer. That individual would come in and they would do the training in the local language. We would get from the vendor, and Treliant has this, the transcript that was written in English, and that individual could then do the local translation. Saved us a lot of money. So customers have been very appreciative of that approach. I've gotten on many calls where folks are like, oh, I didn't think of that. That makes sense. And either I'd be talking to a chief compliance officer or somebody on that person's team and they'd go back and they look like a hero, right? And I'm like, fine, I don't, you don't have to say it was my idea. And then my folks internally are like, oh, wow, that's a way that we can help our customers that we didn't even think about. And that's, that's something that unless you've done it and you've lived it, you're not necessarily going to think, think about that. So that's one struggle. The other one that you hear, I'm sure all the time, just generally is resources and budget. And now in particular, given the state of the economy, we are seeing that impact decisions. We are seeing customers that are putting off training, right? Till later in the year who are just, or maybe just saying, we're not going to do it. Typically it's within the HR space. Uh, Interestingly, DEI, while it's such an important area, Folks are trying to figure out other ways to tackle that internal communications, maybe emails, maybe they train on their own. And historically, that's been a big area for us has been DEI and discrimination and harassment training. So yes. we're, we're trying to we're trying to wrestle with that as well. And then with respect to what is it that they really customers don't really know that they need, but we're like, no, you need this. And we're trying to help with that is is data, right? using data correctly. And again, that really seems to be a product of the size of the organization. For example, I went down to the Concero Chief Ethics and Compliance Officer Conference in December. I spoke there on a panel and it was a lot of Fortune 500 companies that were in the audience. Every single Chief Compliance Officer and General Counsel that was in the audience talked about the need to leverage data. They completely got it, right? And so those with those customers, we're having those conversations about how to help them. The smaller companies, they're like, no, we're not big. We're not public. We don't need that. And I'm like, no, you do, right? You have data there too. It helps you identify your risks. It helps you figure out where to allocate your very limited resources. It will help you report to your senior leadership, your stakeholders on what your program is about, what how you're helping to fix some of the issues that you all struggle with, right? And they're like, oh, yeah, well, that makes sense. So that's the conversation that we're having with a lot of customers now is about how to better leverage data. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a huge challenge. I mean, and I will talk about how I'm a non-numbers person. But with that said, and even the data, the metrics, how do you effectively do? I think also you talked about the data a little bit. What about, is that one of the biggest, do you think that's the biggest challenge right now for effective training and learning in businesses? Is that kind of the biggest one you're seeing? Yeah, so I would say, yeah, that that definitely is. We've come out with something that folks that are on RLMS anyway can leverage, and it's called question level reporting. And what we're trying to do is um, bring to the forefront of the the client, the company, an understanding of who's getting what questions wrong. When I was reporting the event, we were only able to report on completion rates. And that doesn't really give a true picture of the, of the training and the effectiveness of the training. It certainly proves that you did it. But question level reporting is an area in which you can now start to identify a little bit better the areas that not just the risk areas, but also 
either the business line, the geography, or particular individuals, because you can even you can drill down to that level, right? Like how many times do they have to take the answer the question, right? Why aren't they understanding? Is it a question issue? Is it a subject issue? And then we have the ability to send out reinforcement assets, right? So if somebody just doesn't seem to be doing very well with the anti-bribery and trust training, for example, a compliance officer can then launch a five or 10 minute enforcement follow-up training just to to try to make sure that people are mastering the topic. And if they still aren't doing well, then at that point, the customer needs to sit down and examine whether they have some other type of systemic issue that they have to look at. I also think that you talked about translations, but cultural differences make a huge, in terms of training and understanding. And I guess one of the issues I think about with that is in the gifts and hospitality or other areas. In some countries, it's just a common courtesy when you go to a meeting with the government, you bring... Yes. Some trinket. Now, in a lot of companies, publicly traded others, that's a, that's something you can't do. Yes, no, so right. <laughs> how you explain that and also how you can not hurt your people who are working with you is always seems to be a challenge as well. Yeah, it really is. Like when I was in the sea, one of the things we did, we worked, we had a big in China. And as you could imagine, China has its own unique challenges. And so what we did was we created a separate business courtesies policy In China, I worked very closely with our local general counsel in China, and I had a guy on the ground, a compliance guy. I mean, we went back and forth for a while on what it should look like because of the holiday type gifts when they they have the pies. Yeah. And so we carved out a bunch of stuff. If it was below a certain level and it was tied to not tied to this, that, or the other thing. And then everything outside of that was even stricter than the global policy. Point is, there are jurisdictions in which you're going to have to go in and have something that's specific to that to that country so that you don't offend and because that's not helpful either. The business does not won't appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. At a minimum, you tend to not want to offend your customers. Right, exactly. That's usually a really bad day for a lot of people. Especially the compliance officer. Because <laughs> you're the one ruining the you're business. You're getting blamed. Yes. You're getting it's blamed. Your fault. One of the things that I, when I was preparing and thinking about talking to you today is AI. Everyone with chat, GPT, and all of these things. It's all over the news. My company and many others, everybody's talking about what is this development? I think Bill Gates said something like it's the hugest thing in X number of years. How is, how, what are you all talking about? What are you from your evangelist role thinking about that going forward and your concerns? So we're trying to be a little cautious in that, in the AI space, right? Because there's a lot to be learned about, about how it's going to impact things. That said, at a high level, my CTO and I talk about, can we use AI in order to personalize learning paths, right, for people that are taking taking the learning? And I'm not talking just about accelerated learning. We have that test out and that kind of thing. But really more about can AI give somebody a custom customized type piece of personalized learning, measuring performance, identifying knowledge gaps. It's probably going to be helpful in that regard. But I heard a story that as a lawyer made me bristle a little bit, and it was as follows. There was a lawyer who represents a client in Manhattan in connection with a real estate transaction and needed to write a letter to the other side about liens and list pendants and all that kind of good real estate stuff. Went into, I think it was chat GPT or whatever they call it, and put in all these terms. A letter was spit out, right, to the other side. This person read, the lawyer read the letter, was like, oh, this is pretty good, signed his name and then sent it to the other side. Now, it raised so many questions for me. I was like, 
Is that a professional responsibility problem, right? That's not your work product. That's not, you're not practicing law. Like there's just so many challenges, I think, that is, are there ethical issues? Did he bill the client for it? Did he bill the client an hour for preparing a letter that he could probably spit out in 10 minutes? I don't know the answers to any of those questions, but those are the types of issues when I hear stories like that, that I'm like, wait a minute, right? This sounds good, but... There's, there are issues that flow from it. We're being cautious. I think it is. And I also think people will be smart enough to start asking the questions to get the answers or the input that they may want and to rely on it. On the other hand, I think it can be helpful if people want it, if you can utilize it so that you can personalize some of the Q&A for a way that may work for your organization. Yeah. I just There's a lot out there that we don't know yet. No, and, and, more, and another specific example within Trelion, actually, my head of marketing sent me an email and he was like, can you take a look at this blog? Tell me what you think about it. And I read it and it was about the DOJ and the DOJ's new position and all the stuff that you and I were just talking about. And I read it. It was like off the mark, right? It was like, it was this piece of writing that like missed the point. And I was terrified that somebody on his marketing team had written. So I wrote back and I'm like, things like this, you need to have your team sent to me because I can make sure it's accurate. And he's like, no, it was just a test. We, that was a, that was an AI, that was AI generated. Right. And I said, listen, I said, we can use it as a starting point. Right. So that there's not a blank piece of paper that I have to start writing articles with a blank piece of paper, but by no means do I want you just going in getting this and just like going out with it because if he had published that, it would have looked like we didn't know what we were talking about from a compliance perspective because it was wrong in places, at least. That's not really where you want your yourself to put in, putting yourself out there for the no. training component of it. I think it's just I think it's just such an interesting area, and I think it's one that we're absolutely going to be in and out of for a long time, figuring out what we need to do and what our responsibilities are I from agree. ethics and compliance. Agreed. But, so my last question for you, and I really just do appreciate you taking the time, and is that as I looked at your history, and you mentioned it at the beginning of our conversation, that from your financial and your law firm background, you have Series 24, 7, and 63 financial security licenses. It's the first time I think I've ever mentioned them on the podcast. <laughs> but what I found and wanted to ask about a little bit is how do you think that's impacted the way you think in the field and you've built a career? Because it's a perspective that from a financial and security standpoint, probably can help you connect both with finance types and others. And are there any ways we can improve our understanding or better connect or some lessons learned on that? Yeah, sure. I took those exams when I was at Starwood. We formed a broker dealer while I was there and I was going to be the chief compliance officer of it. And you need those licenses uh, in order to do that. And so it was an unbelievable experience for me because I was a political science major from a small Catholic college up in Massachusetts. I was like, what? I have no business doing this. And I studied and I took the courses and the seven and whatever, all of that good stuff. It was was hard though. It was harder harder for me than the bar exam, honestly. You're right. It gives you a different sort of perspective. Although I will say that a theme that I saw within that world that we as lawyers are, are and compliance officers are familiar with is the concept of fiduciary duty, right? And so when you read some of the securities laws, I always was enamored of lawyers who practice in that area. I was like, wow, that must be so hard. And you guys are so smart, right? And they are, and it is hard. But at the core, at the heart of it all is the concept of fiduciary duty. And so if you remember that you, and you bring that into what you do on a daily basis, and you're dealing with financial folks and people that think that way, 
they understand that they learn that, right? They have to learn that they hold those licenses. They understand they're a fiduciary to their investors and to the other stakeholders. And so the way I always approached it was just to keep that common thread in place when I was having those conversations and it made it easier for us to, to relate to one another, if that answers your question. No, it does. Thinking about how to best connect sometimes with finance and salespeople and speaking. I'm always, we talk, you talk about translations, but I think everybody speaks a slightly different language about how they do their work. Yes. Even within there. So how do we best connect so that we are ethics and compliance people, resources, there's training, there's lots of things, but that's one of the things I thought was really interesting about that because that probably makes you well-suited for those conversations. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing I used to say too was to our business people at Cushman here, I don't have, I'm not in that role, so I don't have to say it, but I'm not here to stop you from doing what you do. I'm not here to stop you from making profit. To, To the contrary, I'm here to make sure that we keep the doors open so that we can continue to make profit, so that we continue to honor our obligations to our stockholders, our shareholders, our other stakeholders, et cetera. And if I could get them to understand it that way, it was a, <laughs> it made the conversation a little bit easier. I'm not the department of no. I'm the department of let's see how we can do it so that we keep the doors open and the government doesn't shut us down. <laughs> yeah. I, I often, I've been known to say when the you was a cost center, I said, I prefer the term revenue protector. I loved it. You said that to me once before. I thought yeah, that was that's my favorite. That's yes. my favorite. I forget who I say it because that's one that I say every so often. I like that one. And that's really what we're trying to do. I'm not that's trying right. to be right. the Department of No. And our trainings aren't that, which is, you know, what you all are doing. Exactly. I think. Right. So as you've gotten to, you're getting close to a year in this, what's been your favorite part of this new role and what you're being able to do to support training and ethics and compliance? Doing this is, to be perfectly honest with you, doing this, being on the podcast, going down to speak on the on the panels. I did a webinar last week at Cushman on the new Cushman and Treliant on the new uh the new DOJ stuff. And I really like that. I really you're doing these podcasts. It's fun, right? It's a lot of fun. And this is probably not a surprise to you. I've tried to invite some of our customers to come along with me on webinars and podcasts and all this other stuff because I think it's so much fun. And I'm like, this is a nice thing for your career. And I've gotten a lot of people that have said thank you, but no thank you. So I guess it's not for everybody. You have to have a certain type of personality to be willing to put yourself out there. But I think this part of it, this leg of the three-leg stool I described earlier for me is great. It's really fun. Yeah. For both Mary and I, we do this and it really is because I enjoy it. And I learn, I actually do a lot of my learning from people that I get to know in the community. And it is one of the most fun things that I get to do. It's Sometimes less outside my comfort zone five years later, but at the very beginning, too, it's thinking, or when you mentioned DE and I earlier, especially during Black Lives Matter, talking yes. all the vulnerabilities or other things is really hard at first. Yeah. And then you realize that people are listening to all of this, but then I realize that I learn a lot and it is a great opportunity. And I get to connect with people like you and others and learn about the field. So hopefully, as you're out there, I assume you'll be at some of the regular conferences who so will get to hear you. Yeah. Those, if not others. Definitely. And you know, just thank you so much for joining me on this. I'm so glad I got the opportunity to talk to you and to be getting to know you as this job. Just really interesting in that you're targeting what we need to know and what we need to give to our teams and our employees. Thanks so much. I really appreciate the opportunity as well. And since we're recording this in Women's History Month, it's really great to be on Great Women in Compliance, especially now because I and to have you guys doing this is so super important because we need to make sure that there's more ways to highlight the women that and create some guidance for those behind us and let them know what we do and that this is a great career 
option for them. So thank you so much for what you guys are doing. I really appreciate it. Thank you for being part of the community. We really, there's a community of such extraordinary women out there that I didn't even know until we got into it. So thank you so much for being a GWIC and on behalf of Mary and me and the Compliance Podcast Network. Thanks so much and talk to you soon. Have a great yes. day. You too. Take care. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.